Well, good morning. If you are with the children's ministry, there should be some children workers in the back. And for the rest of us, we are continuing our sermon series in the Gospel of John. So if you would, please join me in turning to John chapter 13. Need a Bible? Maybe just raise your hand and I think someone will walk and bring you a Bible. If not, you might have to go walk and get one yourself. We're going to be in John chapter 13, and we're going to look at all of John chapter 13. Um, we're finished with Christmas. Um, it was exhausting, at least for my family. Um, but when all was said and done, uh, you might not be aware of this, but uh, it, here in America, we spent uh, upwards of $630 billion on Christmas. It is the most expensive consumer holiday, and it's not even close. But do you know the second most expensive consumer holiday in America? Oh, you see, you guys don't know. You don't know. Okay? You, you might think, oh, maybe it's a, a holiday all about mothers. Nope, not Mother's Day. Fathers? Definitely not Father's Day. We spend half as much, I learned, on fathers than mothers. It's not a, a holiday dedicated to scaring people. It is a holiday dedicated to love. Yep, we, on average, spend about $175 per person on Valentine's Day. Now, many of you just threw up in your mouth. <laughs> but it's at least telling, from a cultural perspective, that one of the most expensive consumer holidays in America is a holiday dedicated to love. It's why you can't kill the romantic comedy. Like, it's just going to keep coming up. We love this sort of stuff, don't we? We talk a lot about love. Uh, But in some ways, though we sort of wax on poetically about love, I mean, I I found recently some, it's so embarrassing, some like love letters I wrote to my wife when we were dating. Oh, it was so bad. (laughs) Right? We, We say things like, I'll love you to the moon and back so cute. It's so glorious. It's so wonderful. And yet, when we really think about love, we we say that love conquers all, but but love has a limit, doesn't it? Humanly speaking, love has its limits. There is a point in any relationship, friendship, parenting, marriage, there is a point in which love has a hard time traveling. So when you feel betrayed, feel abandoned, when you've been gossiped about, love has a hard time getting over that barrier, doesn't it? I'm currently experiencing this with a long-distance friend who has left his wife and children and pursuing his sin. And the love I have in my heart is slowly being choked out. Do you guys know this experience? We say things like love conquers all, but humanly speaking, sometimes it's hard to love, isn't it? And so in the midst of this season of love, there's a lot of confusion about love. What does it look like? And if you saw love, if you saw a display of love, would any of us recognize it? Uh, This... This winter, as I said earlier, we're going to go through the 
the end of the Gospel of John. And this morning, we're in chapter 13. And if you don't remember from last week, we ended chapter 12. And Jesus is, is on Sunday, he's going in and entering Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. But John doesn't really kind of care about Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday, or the beginning of Thursday. He just fast-forwards all of it. And in the beginning of chapter 13, we arrive at dinner time, supper time for some of you. And we arrive there, and we begin verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, and look at this phrase, he loved them to the end. That phrase really sums up this whole chapter. He loved them to the end. And there's a double entendre going on here. There's a, there's a double meaning going on here. And so some of your translations say he loved him to the utmost. So Jesus perfectly loved his, his disciples, his sheep. He perfectly, infinitely, gloriously, he loved them perfectly. Jesus is love. But it also means that he loved him to his end. That the greatest display of love is about to be portrayed in the end of Jesus in the death of Jesus, in the crucifixion of Jesus. Chapter 13 is all about love. So you, you see it there, you're going to see that word come up time and time again, but, but even more often than that word that comes up, love, is the theme of love. And this chapter is all about what love looks like, or we could put it this way, it is a description in various facets, maybe looking, like, looking at a diamond, It is looking at various facets of what love is. So if you want to know what love is, if you you want to know what the standard of love is, or maybe you're jaded and cynical about love this morning, this chapter is for you because it really will answer the simple question, what does love look like? Now, the big idea is going to be behind me. And so the big idea is simply this, that the supreme display of love is the cross. That's the big idea. But to sort of unpack it, we're going to look at it in kind of three movements. We could think of it like three acts about love. So we're going to look at the posture of love. We're going to look at the brightness of love. And then we're going to look at the offer of love. So turn with me to verse one. We're going to look at the first 17 verses. Title this the the posture of love. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, 
you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not, one, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put, out his, put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for I am so. If I then, the Lord, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. We'll stop there. So this, chapter 13, marks what many call the upper room discourse. And here, in verses, or in chapters 13 through 17, Jesus is going to give kind of theological talk after theological talk. And so the scene is sort of set. They're at the Passover meal. They're sitting. Jesus is sitting with his disciples. And then in verse 2 to 3, we learn that, that from this language that Jesus knows exactly who he is, right? He says, I am here with you right now, but I'm going to go to the Father. He knows exactly what's going on. He is completely in control. They, whoever they are, they say that in your 20s, you ask the fundamental question of who am I? Like It's the question of identity. Well, metaphorically speaking, Jesus never went through his 20s, right? He always knew who he was and what he came to do. And he says, he's sort of completely in control of this situation. And he says, I'm here with you now, but I'm leaving. And so it's not interesting to note that he is confused about who he is. No, he knows exactly who he is. What's really interesting is since he knows who he is, look at what he does, starting in verse 4. Right, he, he, he gets up, he grabs a towel, he wraps it around his waist, he grabs a basin of water, he gets down on his knees, and he begins to wash the disciples' feet. Um, there, there are many nights in which my wife and I are just hanging out, and I'll ask her to rub my feet, and she always, and it's kind of a bit, she always responds the same way. She says, Gross. And she's right in one sense. Like, feet are gross. They get sweaty. They're stinky. You get lint in your toes from your socks. Feet are objectively gross. But think for a moment in Jesus' day, right? They didn't have socks and shoes. They wore sandals. There was no, like, like running water in that sense, sanitation. So just imagine how gross the feet are of the disciples. I mean, you couldn't pay me to wash the feet of someone in the first century. I actually learned this week that, uh, that nowhere in, in any literature in the ancient Near East is it written that a master or someone who's high, has a high um, social standing, stoops so low as to wash someone beneath him. Like, it didn't, didn't happen. It was a social ta- taboo. It would be breaking every norm. People who were servants, even the lowest of the lows, they would wash people who were above them socially, but it would never go in the reverse. There is no reference in all of literature 
until here, until this moment, until this act, when Jesus breaks this norm. So Jesus, fully God, creator of the universe, stoops so low as to wash the bacteria, the filth, the grime, the smell off of the disciples' feet. I mean, could there be a greater display of condescension than this act right here? I mean, it is, if, well, it's offensive. And it's exactly how Peter takes it. Peter is offended. Look at it. In verse 8, he basically says, nope, not me. You're not going to do it. I mean, I'll wash your feet, Jesus, but you are not touching my feet. And it's not just because he thought his feet were ticklish or something. It was, he was offended by it because he's below Jesus. Jesus responds, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And so from that sentence, we know that what is going on here is not just a foot washing. What's going on here is not just a physical act. What Jesus is doing is he's saying, I am displaying physically something of a theological reality. It's sort of like a a drama. It's sort of like street theater. Jesus is doing something physical in order to point to something spiritual. So Jesus rises from supper, leaves his place as a sort of a, he's physically doing that, but think of the, what this points to spiritually. So he rises from the table and leaves the place of comfort physically. And this is, a, this is pointing to how Jesus did this from eternity past, that he left eternity past, the comfort of it, and entered into human, uh, into human life in the incarnation. Jesus then lays aside his garment, just as he temporarily laid aside his glorious existence. He took a towel, just as he is about to take the form of a servant. He then pours out water in a basin because he's about to pour out his blood for sins. And he washes the disciples' feet as he's about to, on the cross and in the resurrection, he's going to wash humanity from the defilement and the contaminants, not of physical pollution, but of spiritual pollution, the, the pollution brought on by sin. So Jesus isn't just washing their feet. He's pointing this foot washing to a great reality about what he's about to accomplish on Good Friday and Easter. He is about to clean them, wash them, spiritually speaking. That is the display of love that we see in this first movement. This is nothing short of the offer of the gospel. That Jesus can wash your sins away. And this is, if you want to know what love is, if you want to know what the standard of love is, if you want to see what love looks like, look at the cross. You see, the the gospel that we talk about here, it's not a physical washing, it is a spiritual washing, a renewal, spiritually speaking, where sin is taken away by Jesus, who stands in our place, condemned, so that we get Christ's righteousness. That's the offer of love. And I just love, did, did you notice you guys all laughed? So you, you got the, the, the hilariousness of it. I just love Peter's response when Jesus says, yo, if you don't receive this washing, you'll have no part in, you know, in me. You'll have no part in my inheritance. You, you won't have this spiritual washing. And Peter's like, well, then my head, my, like, he's like, I'll cannonball into this washing. 
Well, just as Jesus offers this washing to his disciples, well, the spiritual offering of this washing, it comes down through all, through all of history and it comes to us too. We can have this washing. We can be washed from the contaminants of sin. And there's only one prerequisite. There's only one prerequisite. And it is the prerequisite to pursue it. It's the prerequisite to just have the humility to say, I need it and I want it. Christ, wash me. And right here, right now, you can have it. It is as simple as the humility of praying, Christ, wash me from my sins. But there's one more thing I want to mention as a display of love, and we see it in verse 12. So Jesus asks them, like, do, do you understand what just took place? Like, he, he comes back to the table after washing their feet, and he's like, did you understand what I just did there? They're all confused. They obviously don't know. And then Jesus says, well, you call me Lord and Master, and I am, or Lord and Teacher, and I am Lord and Teacher. And he makes an argument from the greater to the smaller, and he says, since I am Teacher and Lord, since I am the creator of the universe, since I am greater than you, and since I washed your feet, therefore you should serve one another. See, see that moment there? Since I am Lord of the universe and washed your feet, so you ought to serve one another. You ought to imitate Jesus because Jesus serves you. You ought to serve others. Now, this is not saying, well, Jesus washed them physically, so we need to start like a ministry of foot washing here. Like, maybe, maybe that would work in some context. That's not what we're talking about here. But he is saying that since Christ has stooped so low as to wash us, that we ought to serve and love one another. There's that language of Jesus being our example, isn't it? Now, the, the application of this, I mean... I'd be up here all day, like we could list application after application of what does it look like as a community in love, an imitation of Christ as our great example to serve one another. I mean, it, it looks like showing up on a Saturday and helping someone move. I mean, that's, that's, that's a loving act of service. It looks like helping people to get someplace that they need to get. It, it looks like so many things, cooking dinner for someone who just has a baby. It looks like a lot of things, but... The encouragement here isn't, oh, how do I do it? It's really just opening up your eyes and saying, oh, how can God use me? How can I image Christ by serving one another? And let me just caution us, because I think sometimes, and maybe this is just my heart, but my guess is your heart is at least similar to mine. There are sometimes a thought pops into my head. There's an offer, there's, there's some opportunity to serve, and I think, that's below me. Or I think, they don't deserve it. And that's the whole point. They don't deserve it. Because, again, Jesus is connecting, we should be connecting our service to one another, to Jesus. I mean, we didn't deserve Christ's washing, and yet he stooped so low. So if Christ stooped that low, I can guarantee this. I'll, 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 I'll say a superlative, which I generally don't like, but 
since if you meditate on just how low Christ stooped to wash us, there is no depth of stooping for any of us. There is nothing beyond us when it comes to serving one another. But it's not a burden. It is a joy. It's connecting our service to one another, to Christ. So that's, that's the first display of love. It's the display of this posture of service that we get from Christ, connected to the gospel, that we then serve one another. That's the first, the posture of love. But second, let's, let's look at it. the brightness of love, starting in verse 18. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of the disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at a table at Jesus' side, so Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then, after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are doing, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought because Judas had the money bags, Jesus was telling him, why was, what, what, um, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. So Jesus is back reclining at the table. After he just washed the disciples' feet, and he makes a shocking announcement, doesn't he? He's like looking around and he announces scandalously that one of them will betray Jesus. Earlier in verse 2, John tells us that the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas to do this. And then we get to verse 21 and Jesus publicly announces this. And you can just imagine everyone's around going like, not me. Definitely not me. And so they finally ask Jesus the million-dollar question. Jesus, who, who is it? Who is it? And so Jesus says, it's the one who I'm going to take this sourdough bread or whatever, and I'm going to dip it in some hummus, and I'm going to give it to the person who is going to betray me. That's not how it happened, but you get the picture, right? Then he gives it to Judas. Now, I was like reading this and I was like, well, if I was there, I'd be like, you, and I'd tackle him and be like, what are you, like, whatever. They don't do it. They're confused. They're like, it can't be Judas. There's no way it's Judas. So they're confused and they're like, oh, maybe, maybe Jesus just gave him that because he gave him an errand to run for the Passover meal. Maybe, maybe he's like, hey, why don't you go? There's, I, I saw some, some beggars out there. Can you go, uh, can you go feed, um, some people out there, like, they're, they're all confused. Jesus isn't confused at all. There really is a lot of intentionality that's going on here. And it's interesting because you're like, why, why is it that Jesus points out Judas in the way that he does? Well, there's a reason why. 
You see, in the ancient Near East, uh, to share a meal with someone, to have sort of table fellowship, was to mean, even if you shared it with your enemy, it would mean you would do no harm to them. You couldn't do harm to him. That's the law of hospitality. So here, Jesus is sitting down with Judas, having table fellowship, sharing a meal with him, and the law of hospitality requires that neither do harm to one another. That's the context of this evil act. Judas is not just betraying Jesus. He is breaking every norm. I mean, it is, in one sense, displaying the true evil of this act. The depth of betrayal that Judas is going. It's why Jesus, I don't know if you noticed it, but uh, back in verse um, 18, he quotes from Psalm 41, which is a Psalm of David when David reflects on a friend who he broke a meal with and yet betrayed him. Do do you realize that's why there was so much uh, social and societal uproar when Jesus has a meal with tax collectors and prostitutes? Like, they're like, Jesus, by doing so, you're saying that you can be a friend with sinners. And indeed, Jesus was saying that. So here we have Judas and Jesus having a meal together, and it's, that's the context for this betrayal. That's the context that kind of creates this backdrop of this evil act. That's why Jesus then sort of, I'm guessing, whispers at the end, what you are going to do, go and do quickly. And then verse 30 ends with Judas getting up and leaving. And sort of the, the darkness of that act is only matched by the darkness of the setting. And it was night. But why does Judas, or why does Jesus point out Judas? You ever thought about this? Why? This could mess everything up. Why does Jesus point out Judas to his disciples? Let me explain. Uh, There's an old missionary biography, or autobiography, called The Peace Child by Don Richardson. And he's a missionary in Papua New Guinea. And eventually he shares the gospel in uh, the, um, the native language. And as he shares the gospel with these people, they cheer because they think the hero of the story is Judas. Because Judas got away with it. Judas was a schemer. Judas tricked Jesus. And therefore Judas is the hero of the story. Nothing could be further from the truth. And so Jesus, fully in control, he points out that Judas is going to betray him. And he does so. Verse 20, truly, truly, I say to you, whomever receives the one who I sent receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. What he's saying in this section is, I'm pointing out Judas to you because you might be thinking, oh, when I die, When I get betrayed, I didn't see it coming. Right? I mean, I saw what happened to the Seahawks yesterday. I saw it coming, okay? I don't think he had to be a prophet to see it coming. But if you bet your whole house on the Seahawks winning yesterday, that'd be embarrassing. 
And so Jesus loves his disciples so much that he doesn't want them, when he dies and is betrayed, he doesn't want them to be like, oh, Jesus was really naive. Jesus didn't see it coming. And so he points out, he says, nope, Judas is in one sense elected for this position as he is the fulfillment of the scriptures, verse 18. Judas, well, Jesus saw it coming. Jesus knew Judas would be the one who would betray him. And so as an act of love to the disciples, he points Judas out so that when it happens, they don't get discouraged. But there's more going on too. There's one more important aspect of this that I think is such a great display of love in this section. Jesus is in control. He knows who he is. He knows where he's going. He knows who's going to betray him. All the dominoes are moving in place. And he points out just the true vile and dark, evil act of Judas because it is in the backdrop of that dark, evil act that Christ's love will be on display. Jesus walked with Judas. And Jesus knew that Judas would betray him. And Jesus washed Judas' feet. And Jesus talked to, Jesus, or to Judas at that meal. The darkness and evilness of Judas and this act is the perfect context to display the brightness of the love of Jesus. That Jesus would stoop so low as to wash in one sense, his enemies or his betrayers' feet. I mean, it's hard to love a friend sometime or a spouse or a child, but it's not insurmountable. Like, we, we, we could generally do that. But, but loving someone who betrays you or abandons you or stabs you in the back, not only is it hard, it's, dare I say, almost Supernatural. This weekend, we celebrate Martin Luther King Jr. And in many ways, the brightness of that moment, the love displayed, the reason why it's so bright is because of the backdrop and context of darkness. Martin Luther King Jr. even himself said once, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. So, don't, don't, don't get me wrong. It's really hard to go through seasons of hardship and darkness and evil. But so often, those moments, those hardships, those temptations are the context to display the brightness and goodness and love of God. The darkest hour is just before the dawn, is it not? So, we've seen the posture of love, the brightness of love. Lastly and briefly, we have an offer of love. Verse 31, go there with me. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. Just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, 
Where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I follow you now? Why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. So with Judas gone now, the dominoes are beginning to fall into place. Jesus is going to be glorified when he is lifted up on a cross. He tells his disciples he's leaving. And where he's going, they can't come. And then, after saying this, that that he is going to be glorified and, and love is going to be displayed when he is lifted up on a cross, he gives them a new offer or a new command. Verse 34. A new command I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. If you read the Old Testament, there's a lot of talk about love. We're told to love God and love our neighbor. How is this a new command? How is this a new offer? Well, it's a new offer because of the source of this love. Since Jesus loves you so much and displays that love in the cross, and since she offers and gives you that love, so you now, fueled by that love, should love one another. Since Jesus has redeemed you and forgiven you and pardoned you, now you who have been redeemed and forgiven, now you, in light of that reality, share it with others. Love one another. We often talk about the cross as that great display of love, which it is, but it's not just a display of love. It is a fuel to our love. To the extent that we understand the great love that God has for us in Christ Jesus, in his death, and in his resurrection, we, the redeemed, we who have come to an end of ourselves and put our trust and faith in Jesus Christ, can then imitate Jesus by living in light of Jesus and loving one another. That's what this says. That the great fuel for our love for one another is God's own love for us in Christ Jesus. Now, Peter gets all confused, doesn't he? He's like, no, you're not going away, Jesus. And if you do, I'll fight for you. And Jesus says, where I'm going, you can't go. He gives a little, uh, Jesus gives a little prophetic things like, you're going to die. Um, but not yet, but how I'm going to die. And the reason I'm dying, you can't do that, Peter. Jesus is going to die in one sense for love. Peter can't even die to himself at this point. Verse 38, he's going to reject Jesus, betray Jesus in one sense. Peter doesn't get it. And yet, verse 35 spells out why this love displayed between us 
is so important. Did you notice it? Verse 35. By this, this command to love one another, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So our love for one another, how we love one another, how we serve one another, how we are patient and kind, how we treat one another, is not just arbitrary or it has no impact. Verse 35 tells us that to the extent that we do that is the extent that we prophetically display God's love in the world. We put God on display as we love one another. There's Churches talk about lots of important ministries and, and getting involved and connected. But one thing we know about love is Love doesn't work without commitment. If there's a, a loophole or if there's a, 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 some way of getting out, then it's really easy to say, oh, I love you right now for a moment, but, but when, when it gets hard, when it gets difficult, I'm out. I mean, if you go through 1 Corinthians 13, that, that great chapter on love, love is patient and kind does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. How can you do any of those without the context of commitment? There has to be a level of commitment in order to manifest that love. You you, you might in one sense get tired of in one sense, our, our church and its encouragement for people to be members. But that's just a word that we try to express the idea of committing to one another. And it's not just, oh, our church has membership and other churches don't have, mem- have membership. No, no, no. Membership is, in one sense, is just a mechanism to create commitment to one another because we believe verse 35 means something. And not just verse 35 means something, that verse 35 is the hope of the world. That as we commit to one another, take in one sense vows of loving and bearing with one another's burdens and celebrating each other's joys and giving to one another. And when one loses a job, we, we, we try to bear that financial burden as we try to love one another in tangible ways and spiritual ways and praying for one another. It's not just, oh, well, no child is left behind and we're, we're doing great and, 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 you know, no, no, no. We, we do that in part because as we love one another, we are displaying to the world, displaying to the nations, displaying to our community, displaying to our neighborhoods that God is alive. How we love one another matters. Which is why If it's hard to love one another, good. (laughs) That's the church. When I, uh, when when a few of us, uh, a friend and I planted a church like 10 years ago, I was taught this thing called the homogenous unit principle. You don't know what it is, but I promise you, you know how this is lived out. But the idea is this. This is how you plant a church. This is how you're successfully planted a church. You find a group of people that are homogenous, just like they all have kind of a homogenous identity and you reach them and you don't worry about anyone else. 
So you're like, I'm going to plant in rural Texas. And you're like, I'm going to plant a cowboy church. I'm going to go after cowboys. And if someone comes in and they're not a cowboy and they're a hippie from Portland, you go, I don't care. I don't need you. I don't want you. I'm going after cowboys. You can find a, a hippie church or something. And so we plant these homogenous churches because guess what? Everyone wants to worship in a church that just is like them, that looks like them, that has the same preferences and likes. It's easier to love one another in that way, is it not? You can just speak the same language. But is love displayed in that? I think love is displayed in its greatest depiction when you love someone who's not like you. That's, that's, that's the glory and hardship of marriage. That a man is not like a woman and a woman is not like a man and that's what makes marriage so hard. It's not like if you just became more like me, this marriage would be easier. No, the, the, the beauty of love displayed is that you have to love someone who's not like you. Who doesn't think like you? It would be so much easier if they're like you. But that is the display of love that God wants to kind of present to the world because it's a display of the gospel. So don't run from hard-to-love saints. That's the great backdrop of the display of love that we want to, as a church, harness and use and prophetically portray to our community to explain who God is. That Jesus would leave the comforts of fellowship in the Godhead, the comforts of eternity, and stoop so low into the incarnation to take on humanity, to wash our feet, not merely physically, but spiritually, to die on a cross, raise up and do all of this as a display of love. Love for the Father and love for us. As you get that, as you experience that, as you meditate on that reality, you begin to realize what fun it is to love one another because you want to put God on a pedestal. You want to display Jesus to the world. And one way you do it is by sacrificial love, generous love, patient love, brutal honesty love. Well, let's conclude. What does love look like? Let me just kind of summarize this entire chapter and we'll be done. Love is displayed most clearly, most powerfully on the cross when Jesus dies. Which then fuels, which fuels our love as we love as Christ loved us. So a month from yesterday, Valentine's Day. We don't need a holiday to meditate on love. Valentine's Day is not the standard of love. All we need is to just look at Jesus, who he is, what he's done. If you want to love your community, your neighborhood, your family, your friends, your coworkers, the fuel, the power, the means. It's in Jesus and the gospel. Look there and you will be filled with his love and be more apt to love in like form. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we know that in so many ways we, we are jaded by love, we are wounded by love, we feel let down by love. 
But that's human love. When we get a glimpse of your love for us in Christ Jesus and what he's done, Lord, we, we're not let down. So Lord, we, we pray that you would encourage us, speak to us, and help us to know how we can love one another better, more consistently. And oftentimes that looks like just asking for forgiveness and repenting and seeking reconciliation. So if that be any of us, Lord, we pray that you would put it on our hearts to do that, that we would pursue one another in love for your glory, our good, and the good of this world. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.